Well, today, brothers and sisters, we begin a new and third major division of the book of Leviticus, namely chapters 11 through 16, which deal with uncleanness and its treatment. Here again, with this new section, we see, as we've seen before, kind of the unfolding logic, the organization behind the book of Leviticus as it is written. If you remember, we saw the first major section deals with the sacrifices, which is fitting because everything else in the book depends on those sacrifices. You might think, well, shouldn't the priests be first? Well, you need to know the certain sacrifice before you can ordain priests. So the sacrifices go first. The second major section deals with the priests because you do need priests to offer up the sacrifices. And so there, again, it kind of continues to unfold. Furthermore, as far as uncleanness is concerned, the sacrifices provide a cleansing. The priests are the one who, off, uh, who offer that, but it is also the special role of the priest, kind of like a judge today. Well, our judges mostly pronounce the sentence, depends on the kind of jury you have. But a judge can, pr can pronounce guilty or innocent, right? In many ways, the priest had the main role of doing that in certain cases of uncleanness. We'll see this particularly in chapter 13. It's the special role of the priest to pronounce one clean or unclean, and it is necessary to get that pronouncement in order to obtain cleanness in certain cases. And so it is fitting that the sacrifices and the priesthood come before this section on uncleanness because without them, many of the instructions for the cleansing of uncleanness would really be unintelligible. That being said, however, this section is still very, very necessary. Because while there is kind of a general idea, and there have been some instructions before this section of certain things that constitute uncleanness, nevertheless, the idea has never been fully elaborated on in all kinds of detail, at least as far as all of life is concerned. Um, there have been kind of some little hints here and there, but the day-to-day -day kind of uh, the bylaws section, if you will, um, has not been expounded yet, and it is really chapters 11 through 16 that fulfill that role. Furthermore, we should bear in mind that even in this third section itself, there is a logic to how it is structured, namely that it culminates in chapter 16 in the Day of Atonement. Gordon Wenham notes, chapters 11 through 15 provide essential background for understanding the significance of the Day of Atonement. If you remember, the Day of Atonement was for forgiving sins, but it was also sin as uncleanness. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 16, it says of the Day of Atonement, thus he, the high priest, shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Well, as far as what all that entails, why it needs to be cleansed, all of that is, is told to us in chapters 11 through 15. And it is there that we really get a comprehensive sense of all the ways in which an Israelite could become unclean, which necessitates the Day of Atonement. Today, we are in chapter 11, as we just read, with a distinction between clean and unclean animals. Now, in many ways, when people think of Leviticus, 
its challenges, its difficulties, right? All of that stuff. As I said, we are, we are deep in Leviticus country now, right? Um, it is precisely chapters like this that come to mind. This is a difficult passage. We kind of admit that going into it. It's very detailed. I had never even heard of a tawny owl before this, right? Um, almost overly detailed, perhaps to us as moderns. It's also quite mysterious. There's a lot of things that you're like, what is going on here? In fact, even Gordon Wenham says at the outset, while these rules about unclean animals are relatively straightforward, the rules themselves are, right? Their rationale is quite obscure and has been a subject of discussion from pre-Christian times. So for thousands of years, even before, before the New Testament, Jews, for thousands of years, ever since these laws have been given, have been debating about the precise rationale of this chapter, and we are going to try to make some conclusions today, but just bear that in mind. There are some mysterious things in this chapter. Lastly, it's not readily apparent the application of this to ourselves. Perhaps you, you came in here <laughs> depressed today. Lord, I need some encouragement. Maybe you came in here stressed out. Something's going on in your life or just things are bad. And you're like, the hoopoe, the lizard, the bat. Just like, oh, thank you, Lord. I just, the encouragement, right, as you leave here. It's not, it's not as easy to see the connection between A and B, right? How does this apply to our lives? And yet, as I said, brothers and sisters, if we have the understanding that Scripture, all Scripture, as Paul says, even Leviticus 11 is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we come with faith to the Word of God like that, we will leave here with food for our souls. Um, you know, I like to say that some passages, it's, it's like a tea ball. You just, you just, as far as preaching it, you just put it on the tea, you just kind of have to swing, and the thing will just take off by itself, right? You, you don't have to do anything. Like Romans 8, the end of Romans 8, you could almost just read it and be like, let's close in prayer. And people would be like, Pastor, that was the best sermon you ever preached in your life, right? Some of them are not on a tee. It's a curveball. <laughs> it's a knuckleball. <laughs> it takes a little bit of skill. You got to kind of focus. You can still hit them though. It's still the word of God. And so if we come with that mindset that this is God's word given for a reason, I believe we will, we will receive some food for our souls today. Well, what I'd like us to do then today is perhaps a little bit different from normally what we might do when we go through a passage. Instead of walking through it and commenting on every verse in detail, I would kind of like us to take more of a big picture approach and discuss more generally how we ought to interpret and understand this passage. I think that will perhaps um, be the most profitable way to kind of ask more big picture questions. Um, if there are some little details later you want to ask me about some things, we could talk about that. But we, we kind of want to ask big, bigger questions today. Really, what we want to understand, our first task, is to understand not so much the commandments themselves, but the rationale behind them. Again, as Gordon Wenham says, and I'll I'm going to, I'll just let you know, I'm going to be quoting him a lot. I was, he was very helpful. This is very ancient scholarly stuff, and so give credit where credit is 
is due, okay? When I, when I say things like, well, archaeology has, it, I was not there, okay? So, but he says this, these rules about unclean animals are relatively straightforward. That's, that's true. If you touch a dead camel, you'll become unclean. Pretty straightforward. Their rationale, however, is quite obscure and has been a subject of discussion from pre-Christian times. So in one sense, it's clear. Certain animals are clean, you can eat them. Certain animals are unclean, you can't eat them, and you cannot touch their carcasses. However, we want to ask, but why? (laughs) You know, even when the text kind of gives us some reasons. For example, some animals only part the hoof but they don't chew the cud. That's why it's unclean. But you still kind of go, yeah, but like, what's the deal with that? What's so holy and special about parting the hoof and chewing the cud? What's, what's the what behind that, right? That's really the first uh, thing that we want to do today. And I believe we'll be able to come, uh, come to some pretty solid conclusions. The second thing we want to do after that is perhaps consider uh, not so much the why. Why is this? like it is, but really consider the so what. Since this is what this teaches in Scripture, since this is the rationale behind these distinctions of clean and unclean foods, what do we take away from that? What's the food for our souls? Perhaps as you saw my sermon title today, you thought to yourselves, oh, pastor, we've already talked about foods that are clean and what can be eaten when and who can eat from the altar and like, what else can we get out of this, right? We're like, We're trying to get the marrow out of the bones. I believe there will be some encouraging and and fresh um, application from this passage as well. And and it seems that the New Testament took a lot of application from this. Well, having said that, let's now begin our first task. Let's see what is the rationale behind why some animals are clean and others are unclean. I will be frank with you that there has been no shortage of answers and solution to that question or those questions in the past 3,000 or more years since these laws were given. Before, however, I come to tell you my own thoughts, my own conclusions, I do think it will be helpful briefly to consider some of the less helpful answers, because some of them you may have even heard today. In fact, that was true for myself. Some of these I grew up hearing. Um, Probably, I imagine some of these you will probably Many of you will say, yeah, I probably heard that too. We want to consider them and their merits as well as their flaws. We want to see if we can poke a hole in them and challenge them. Um, And so that's what we will do. Well, first of all, what are some of these proposed solutions? First, some have suggested that the distinction between animals comes from the fact that some of them were worshipped by other nations around Israel, like pagan idolatry, or that they were given in sacrifice to their pagan gods, and therefore they are unclean by their association with paganism. This definitely has a degree of plausibility to it. However, it doesn't really make sense of the data. For example, there is some evidence that pigs were sacrificed by pagans around Israel. There were, were, on the other hand, many unclean animals, which were not sacrificed at all by the nations, nor were they worshipped. Like, I think the camel is a great example. We don't really have any evidence that the camel was particularly worshipped by the Canaanites or that it was an animal given in sacrifice. Furthermore, historical evidence really suggests 
that while the nations around Israel may have associated certain animals with their gods, yet they largely sacrificed the same kind of animals, pastoral animals, cows, oxen, goats, sheep, kind of all sacrificed the same. What's more, perhaps the most kind of devastating critique of this argument is that there are some clean animals under the law which were worshipped by the nations around Israel. I think the main one that comes to mind is the bull. Think of the golden calf. The Baals, the god Molech, those were all presented as a giant bull or an oxen. They were very big in the pagan religions in Canaan or in the land of Egypt. That animal is clean under the law, and it can be sacrificed. And so the connections with pagan worship and the nations around them, though plausible, doesn't really fit the data. Second, and this is what I heard a lot growing up. I'll ask you if you guys heard this too. It has been suggested by many, this is also very common today, um, that the rationale behind clean and unclean animals had to do with hygiene and health, or that some were safer to eat. Have you guys ever heard that before? That's, that's the big one I heard growing up. Um, and it was kind of, you know, to talk about the wisdom of God and the giving of the law, and, which is all true, right? Um, but that's a particularly strong one, especially today. There does seem to be perhaps some truth to this. Uh, Wenham notes that pork can be a source of trichinosis, right? The rabbit or the hare are carriers of tularemia or rabbit fever. Sorry, I know some of you, you kids have rabbits. Fish without fins and scales tend to burrow into the mud and become sources of dangerous bacteria, as do birds of prey which feed on carcasses, right? Okay, there's some truth to that. Definitely plausibility. However, it still doesn't make sense of all the evidence. For example, not all of the unclean animals are really all that dangerous to eat. Take the camel. The camel is unclean to eat under the law. But in the Middle East, even today, that meat has been considered a delicacy. And they, they have camel milk. From what I can gather, camel meat some say it's a really good source of protein and lean meat or whatever. It's not particularly dangerous any more than any other kind of meat that has to be cooked. Furthermore, as Wenham notes, trichinosis is quite rare in free-range pigs. And that's the kind of that's how they would have had pigs back then. Lastly, there are some animals which are classified as clean, but which nevertheless can be just as unsafe to eat as pork if not cooked properly. For example, chickens and ducks, they're not mentioned explicitly, but they would be classified as fowl or domesticated birds. And we see elsewhere in the Old Testament that those were eaten. Those are clean, they can be eaten. But if you don't cook them well, you can get salmonella, you can get E. coli just as easily as you can get trichinosis. In fact, personally, if you were to say, Pastor Ryan, you have to choose one or the other. This is undercooked pork or undercooked chicken. I'm taking the pork, baby. I don't want, I'm just going to, that seems like a safer bet to me. Chicken is clean under the law. And so that kind of really challenges the idea that hygiene or health um, is really the underlying, the underlying rationale. Lastly, some have suggested that with each animal, there is a special spiritual significance to them in terms of symbolism. 
which makes them clean or unclean. In other words, for various reasons, the clean animals represent the righteous, while the unclean represent the wicked. For example, one ancient Jewish commentator says, the chewing of the cud made an animal clean because it reminded men to meditate on the law. Right? If you've ever seen a cow, they just kind of like... Now, if you're wondering, what, what exactly is chewing of the cud? It's a way that certain animals process their food. It's called rumination. Um, this is exactly the kind of thing you wanted to hear when you came to church. They eat grass, and yet in order to process it, they also regurgitate, and then they chew it. And if you ever see cows, it looks like they're just chewing gum. That's cud. They're chewing it the second time, and then their body's able to process it. It's actually kind of like a process of fermentation in their own belly or something, right? Well, they argued, well, that's how the righteous is to meditate on the law, just as they chew upon the cud. I don't know, not, <laughs> not terribly convincing. Or sheep, it is argued, were clean because it reminded the ancient Israelite that the Lord was his shepherd, whereas the dirty habits of the pig spoke of the filth of iniquity. Now, of all the suggestions put forth so far, I am most sympathetic to the idea of a symbolic rationale in some sense. And we will see as we go, there is some kind of symbolic meaning to clean and unclean animals, particularly when you get to the New Testament, and there's pictures of, uh, it's kind of a parallel between clean and unclean and Jew and Gentile. We'll see that in the book of Acts. My problem with many of these old ones is they're kind of unfounded. Some of them are ridiculous. There's no interpretive method or control. Like, why is the eagle unclean? I mean, isn't God, you know, he will cover you with his wings like an eagle? And it's just, it just seems like there's no real methodology to it. For that reason, I would reject it. Well, having interacted briefly with these views, let us now consider what hopefully is the actual rationale or rationales behind clean and unclean animals. I feel confident that we can say that there are at least three. I don't think there's just one. I think there's three intertwined reasons and rationales, and we have to take them all together. First of all, this might seem like the most obvious in a sense, I would say there's a certain sense in which some animals are clean because they were already the most kind of common food that Jewish people would eat in the ancient world. They were a farming people. They were a shepherding people. So cows, goats, sheep, all of those are clean, and that just kind of makes sense. Furthermore, most of the animals that are unclean were not really a big part of their diet at all, and with some of them, you kind of wouldn't want to eat them anyway. Like, who wants to eat, like, snake unless you're, like, in some kind of a survival situation? I've never wanted to eat the chameleon, the eagle, or things that like live in mud and, and swim and don't have fins and scales, except for, you know, in sushi or something like that. But they weren't into sushi back then, okay? Those things weren't a regular part of their diet, and they are unclean. This is not to say that there's no other symbolic meaning or rationale, nor is it to say that the distinctions are purely arbitrary, rather simply to say that there is an accommodation on the part of God. It would be a great burden if he had declared cows and sheep and goats unclean because that was the main source of meat for the ancient Israelites. And so that's the first rationale I think we want to take into consideration is accommodation 
to, to his people. Second, if we examine the immediate reasons that are given in this chapter for why some are unclean, a pattern begins to emerge. Namely, that unclean animals often tend to break away from a certain kind of norm or behavior among animals. For example, with land animals, they can be eaten if they part the hoof and chew the cud, but not if they do just one or the other. That breaks the pattern. It doesn't fit a norm in a sense. Things in the water that don't have scales or fins, well, that breaks the the pattern, at least for fish. They tend to have scales and fins, and so they're unclean. With insects, it's a little bit more difficult because it actually seems like those that break the pattern are the clean ones. It says, those who have jointed legs above their feet which, with which to hop on the ground. Even here, however, it may be the prob- that the problem with other insects is that they don't fit any pattern or norm at all. Land animals walk, birds fly, fish swim, but swarming animals can fly, they can walk, they can do whatever. They don't fit any kind of norm. However, those with which hop mostly have more of a fixed mode of movement. So in that sense, they are kind of more normal. They fit a norm and a pattern, right? This idea of fitting a pattern or the norm and wholesomeness in general is a big part of the law. It's a big part of the picture of moral wholesomeness moral normalcy. We see this with humans too. For example, we read in Leviticus chapter 21, speak to Aaron saying, none of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. No one with a blemish could be a priest. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. There's nothing wrong morally with any of those things, right? Yet under the law, physical wholeness is meant to be a picture of spiritual wholeness. This is again why leprosy is unclean. Leprosy is the deadening and rotting away of the body. It's a picture then of the deadening and rotting away of the soul that comes from sin. This is also why fields could not have mixed crops. They're breaking the pattern. They're breaking the norm. Clothes could not be made of mixed fabrics. It symbolizes wholeness and normalcy. Some of these animals, however, it seems, break that. So they constitute uncleanness. Lastly, many of these animals are unclean probably because many of them do things that if an Israelite were to do, they themselves would become unclean. For example, as we've seen, Israelites, it says, were not to eat blood. Again, you might think, well, how does you drink blood? You don't eat it. Well, to eat blood under the law was to eat meat or an animal that had not been properly drained of its blood. You, were not to, you had to drain the blood because uh, you would not drink the blood, and the blood is the life. We've, we've seen all that. Well, when a predator kills an animal, when a coyote or whatever kills a rabbit, 
they technically eat the meat and eat the blood. If an Israelite were to do that, it would make them unclean. Many of these animals, um, they, they eat carcasses. They touch dead things. At first, I was going to say, Israelites were not allowed to, touch, to eat dead things. And I was like, no, no, no. They would kill the animal first. They couldn't eat it, however, if it died of natural causes or in some other way they didn't know. That would be to eat a carcass. That was unclean. And yet many of these, particular, particularly birds of prey, they eat carrion, and that makes them unclean. There's a sense then in which some animals are unclean because they do defiling things. They could not be eaten. We should note, again, the emphasis is on eating, not necessarily touching. Um, you could have a camel. A camel's unclean. You weren't supposed to eat it, though. Nor if it died could you touch the carcass. Right? Just, just note that. There's definitely a sense then in which unclean animals are a sort of picture of ritual defilement on the one hand, and also moral defilement, since ritual points to the moral in this sense, unclean animals are just like unclean people. They are like lepers. They're a picture of wickedness. Clean animals are a picture of the righteous, then. In fact, as Gordon Wenham notes, there's actually three kinds of animals in this chapter. The unclean, the clean, but then the third category of those that can be sacrificed. Even though an animal might be clean, it doesn't mean you could sacrifice it. Um, you know, there's no evidence of them sacrificing fishes to God or anything like that. There's three categories. He says this threefold division of animals parallels the divisions of mankind under the law, with the unclean being those excluded from the camp, the clean being the majority of ordinary Israelites, and the sacrificial representing those who offer sacrifice, namely the priests. And so, far from being arbitrary, overly mysterious regulations, the food laws are really just one more expression of those most basic principles that we've seen again and again in the book of Leviticus. God's holiness. that He has made a people holy, separate unto himself, separate from among the nations, just as clean animals are to be separated and distinguished from unclean animals, to be holy unto the Lord. That is another major rationale behind clean and unclean animals. Well, that was our first task, brothers and sisters, to understand the rationales behind clean and unclean. With the time we have left, I want us to turn now to our second task, and apply this passage. How do we apply hoopos and bats and lizards and chameleons to ourselves? Well, as far as this passage applies to us, I would say it applies mainly in two ways that we might think about in terms of discontinuity and continuity. Discontinuity and continuity. First, as far as discontinuity is concerned, we know that these food laws have been abolished. There are many passages we could look to. Um, for example, we're told in Mark's gospel, chapter 7, Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And then Mark comments and says, Thus he declared all foods clean. However, the importance of the abolishment or the abolition of food laws 
is not just that we can eat bacon now, right? I remember seeing a meme, and it showed, uh, <clears throat> what was it? Oh, it showed, it showed a Muslim, and he had a hat on, and it showed a Jew, and he had a hat on, and then I think it, it showed like a Christian bishop or something with a hat, and it said, we all have hats, but we can eat bacon, right? The impact of this is much larger than we get to eat bacon now, right? As I've said, the food laws are done away with, but they are really just one more expression of the underlying principles of the law. And so if the food laws are done away with, it's really a picture of a whole-scale abrogation of the ceremonial law and the Mosaic covenant as a whole. The implications then are much bigger. They're far more profound than we can merely eat certain animals that we could not under the Old Testament. In fact, this is why food laws were such a hot topic in the early church. Really clinging to the food laws, we might say, well, they just don't want to eat pork, or maybe they think that's wrong. Yes, but it was also a way of clinging to the distinctions of the law, to clinging to the distinction between Jew and Gentile, and not fully embracing all the substance that has come in Christ. In many ways, if the food laws still stood, then Jew and Gentile were still separated. You and I would be cut off. Even the Jews themselves were still under the law, which could not offer true sacrifices and which could not make a way of entry into the presence of God. Thankfully, of course, our God in his great perfect wisdom went way out of his way to make sure that his people understood particularly his Jewish Christian people, that not only were the food laws abolished, but even more, the ceremonial law as a whole in the Mosaic Covenant. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Story of Cornelius and Peter. Acts chapter 10 beginning in verse 1. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. 
And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had, that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Let's stop there for a moment. Here, really the best way to understand chapter 10 is in terms of two visions, right? Two visions. Without one vision, uh, the other doesn't really make sense. The first is a vision of an angel sent to Cornelius. He has a Roman name, Cornelius. He's obviously a Gentile. What's worse for the Jews in that part of the world at that time? He was a Roman soldier. He is, however, also what we would call a God-fearer, a God-fearer. That was actually somewhat of a technical term that spoke of a Gentile who wasn't a full-blown convert to Judaism. They had not received circumcision and come under the law. Um, They were not yet part of the covenant people of God, but they had placed their faith in the God of Israel and did keep the moral laws. In fact, in verse 2, it calls him a devout man who feared God. For us, that doesn't pop out as much. It just means he's a devout, a devout guy, right? For them, that means he's a God-fearer. The second thing to notice is the vision that Peter has. Of course, the big thing is that many of the animals mentioned were, for the most part, as we've just read in Leviticus 11, unclean, reptiles, Birds of the air, probably like birds, birds of prey, all kinds of creeping and swarming things on this huge sheet that comes down. It's interesting that the sheet has four corners. You might think, well, Pastor, that's not terribly interesting. I've never known a sheet that doesn't have four corners. Yes, but that they went out of their way to tell us it has four corners is interesting. That's interesting because it makes the sheet a microcosm of the world. That language of four corners is often a way that Scripture speaks of the whole world, just as we might speak of the four points of the compass. Furthermore, the four corners of the world is not just a way of speaking of the geography of the world, but it's particularly shorthand for the nations and peoples of the world. In this sense, this vision that comes down is a picture of all the different kinds of nations and people groups of the world, many of which are unclean in a certain sense, just like these animals. Peter does not immediately understand the meaning of the vision, which makes sense. Cornelius hasn't come. He doesn't understand it. But as soon as he does, he quickly gets it. In fact, later in verse 28, when he arrives at the house of Cornelius, he says this, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 
You see, he gets it. In the dream or the vision, he should not call any animal common or unclean. He now gets it. God sent me. I'm going to a Gentile who normally is a Jew. I would say eh, there's a lot of uncleanness there. They worship foreign gods. There's a lot of you know, sexual immorality. There's a lot of uncleanness going on there. I should not go to them. God says, no, no, no. Do not call any person common or unclean that I have called clean. The distinction is done away with. In fact, in a certain sense, we could say it's been replaced by another distinction. What constitutes the people of God now is no longer that they are the physical offspring of Abraham, but the spiritual offspring. It's no longer the DNA of Abraham which counts, but the faith of Abraham which counts. It's no longer being a member of the Mosaic Covenant, but the new covenant in Christ's blood. As Paul says in Galatians, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Really the most powerful way, really the most beautiful way that God demonstrates this was by giving Cornelius and his family the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Whatever hesitations, whatever prejudices, whatever fears that Peter as a Jew might have had his whole life, you know, not only was there, there was a legitimate separation between Jew and Gentile, there was a lot of also prejudices. The Romans had conquered. They were, they were oppressive. They ruled. They were these pagans. There were all kinds of ways which from the time of his youth, he would not have felt all that great about Gentiles. No matter how Peter feels, however, the Spirit has no such qualms. It says in chapter 11, when Peter is accused by his fellow Jewish Christians, you went in to meet with unclean men, uncircumcised men. He says, if then God, the, God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Now, the idea of standing in God's way is a common theme in the book of Acts, right? You have the authorities who try to stand in the way of the church, no longer preach the gospel. And then I believe it's, was it Gamaliel? Says, brothers, if, we, if this is not from God, it will go away. If it is, we're standing in the way of God. We're resisting God. Here now, it's even the Jewish Christians. They are a danger of standing in the way of God, but God goes and, as it were, embraces this Gentile, gives him a hug, just as he had been with the Jews. There's an old commentator. He's purported to have become a particular Baptist toward the end of his life. Um, his name was Charles-Marie Duvail. He was French. What makes him interesting is that he was born a Jew. In fact, his brother was also born a Jew, and they both converted to Christianity. And in fact, when they did so, their father drew his sword upon them, right? They first converted to Rome. Charles became actually a doctor of divinity. He got his doctorate. He became a theologian. Then after studying scripture, he converted to Protestantism. And so he fled to England. While there, it is believed that he came to some Baptist principles. He seems to have known and read many of the particular Baptists and says, 
In, in fact, he said of Nehemiah Cox that he was a judicious and learned divine. He wrote several commentaries, and one of them is a commentary on the book of Acts. It's quite good. But he says this about Peter's words to his fellow Jews, and when you consider that it came from a man who was himself formerly a Jew, but now come to Christ, now part of the family of Christ, is particularly beautiful. He says, With the common wall of the ceremonial law, which forbade a closer communion betwixt Jew and Gentiles being removed, there was no reason that souls joined by holiness to Christ and to God should any longer be separated from one another. In other words, Cornelius has the Spirit. We have the Spirit. How can we still maintain a division between ourselves? If we have been received unto God, if God has received Cornelius, how much more ought I to do so? Lastly, we should note here that the way this wall was taken down, brothers and sisters, the law was abolished, but the means by which that occurred was the cross of Christ. It is by the cross that the old distinctions have been taken away, that the law was fulfilled and satisfied, and ultimately by the cross, the Jew and Gentile have been united into one body. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Therefore, brothers and sisters, rejoice, for the dividing wall has been taken down. Rejoice particularly because pretty much just all of us in this room are Gentiles, right? We are now full citizens of the covenant, We're not second-class citizens. We have all the privileges and blessings of the covenant people of God. You know, I I love our dispensational brothers and sisters. Um, And I I have many that I appreciate who are holier than I am, uh, much smarter than I am. And I know that they interpret Scripture the way that they do because of what they believe to be true. They do it on matters of principle, and so I want to be careful not to impugn their motives. Yet I do think that really one of my greatest problems with dispensationalism is that in a certain sense, it does seek to rebuild the wall between Jew and Gentile that Christ tore down. Now, I know they would deny that, and and growing up in dispensational circles, they had answers for that, right? And yet I can say, my experience growing up, and I have talked to others who have experienced this, I know, oh, anecdotal evidence, right? But my experience was that there was a great preference given to ethnic Jews in the church, I would say, in which they were kind of first-class citizens and Gentiles were second-class. I was told literally once in a class, the church is plan B, It exists to serve the purposes of the plan A, which is the Jewish nation. They wouldn't say this, but it's like, why are you complaining at all? Just be glad you've kind of been saved, right? Looking back, though, I do think that there were some souls who were really seeking to be more united to God. They wished so badly they were Jewish. I saw this in some people. 
I remember seeing one brother, um, he, he was a black guy, so he was, he was a Gentile, right? He served with a gospel ministry to Jews, which is great. Um, but I remember he gave this presentation and he was like wearing a yarmulke. He may have even had the tassels. And it was like he just wanted so bad to be Jewish. Maybe he just appreciates it. I don't, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. But I wonder, though, if part of that comes from a heart which feels like in order to be truly more accepted by God, I really have to be more Jewish. The Jewish stuff is where it's at. I know one man who goes to synagogue on Saturday and then church on Sunday. I think, again, it's the idea that the true stuff, the real stuff, is not that Greek stuff. It's the Hebrew. Oh, the Hebrew. Oh, wow. Just so you know, Hebrew is just Canaanite, all right? It was, it's a variant of Canaanite that was spoken by the Philistines, all right? Let's just kind of, you know, it's not this spiritual language. Brothers and sisters, all that has been torn down. I even remember one time I met a Jewish guy, and I made a joke. I made like, I was already kind of reformed at that time, and I made a joke. And I said, ooh, double blessings or something like that. He actually didn't think that was funny. He said, you know what? I've been kind of offended. I, don't, I almost don't want to tell people I'm Jewish because they don't just appreciate me as a brother in Christ. I'm now like, ooh, like you're Jewish. And he says, I kind of don't want to tell people because I'm kind of offended. They don't want to just know me, right? Brothers and sisters, I, I, I love our dispensational brothers, but I think that that is to put up the wall again that Christ has torn down. We are now one people. Jewish, Gentile, whatever have you, we are one. We all stand on equal footing. We all have the Spirit. We have the same faith, one Lord, one baptism. Stand firm in grace. Let no one convince you otherwise that you are a second-class citizen. Furthermore, if Christ has torn down this wall... Let us not put up any others in our hearts. Perhaps you might think, well, pastor, I'm not tempted to like go to synagogue on Saturdays. Well, great. Maybe you have no temptation to put up a ceremonial wall in your heart or something like that. You stand strong in grace. Do you stand strong in love? There are many kinds of walls we can put up where there ought to be unity, brothers and sisters. Perhaps not walls of the dietary laws of the Old Testament or things like that, but walls of jealousy, walls of anger, walls of impatience, schism, lovelessness. When you become frustrated with a brother or sister, remember this. They too have the Spirit of God. God has welcomed them. Just as Peter said, if God has given them the same gift, who is I? Who was I to argue and get in the way of God? Remember that. You stand on equal footing. You are united with one another just as much as you are united to God. Let there be no walls whatsoever in your hearts. Lastly, by way of continuity, there is still a sense in which we are to be a separate people of God. We are no longer separated from the nations by physical descent, but rather by faith. Nevertheless, we are still to be a holy people set apart to God from the world around us. You know, by the time of Christ, Jewish Gentiles, 
Jewish-Gentile relations were extremely strained. Um, you know, there, there were, they called them, um, oh, I forget the name. They were like zealots. There was Simon the Zealot. They were basically people who had a dagger, and they would kill a Roman soldier and run away when they could. They were patriots who wanted the Gentiles out, right? So, so relations were, were not that great during the time of Christ and the apostles. However, Jews still did interact with Gentiles in many parts of life. Gentiles were often seen as unclean in, in a moral sense, right, by their idolatry or their sexual immorality, um, but they weren't unclean in the same way as a leper was. You could shake the hand of a Gentile. You could interact with them in terms of commerce. You could even be friends with them. In fact, King David was very good friends with Hiram, the Gentile king of Tyre. However, closer associations were forbidden. Obviously, you could not marry outside of the covenant, just as now we are to marry into the Lord. You are not to become unequally yoked with unbelievers. We often think of that in terms of marriage, but unequally yoked can be much more than just marriage. We are to love unbelievers. We are to open our hearts and our homes to them, and yet still, until they are in the covenant of faith, we are a separate people from them. Paul says, and listen to how he, he brings in the law and the separateness of the old covenant people. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with the unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then he says this, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. I would say that just as there was a sense of certain things being unclean to them back then, that's still applicable to us. Not in a ritual sense. You can eat bacon, calm down, like, don't freak out, I know, right? It's interesting. Some of the animals are not just said to be unclean, but detestable. It's very strong language. They are to be detestable to you. That is to be the posture of the heart, not just unclean, but there is almost to be a, a disgust of certain things. It's really a picture of the detestableness of sin. It's a picture of, of the revulsion that ought to occur in our souls when we see wickedness and righteousness and rebellion against the Lord. That is still true for us today, brothers and sisters. As I said, we, we are to share the gospel to the world with open hearts, all that, but the sin of the world is to be detestable to us. It is defiling. It ought to, to bring about a revulsion in our souls. It's interesting in the book of Revelation, when you see the contrast between Babylon and the New Jerusalem, one is the prostitute of Babylon, the other is the pure bride of Christ. Listen to the contrast between them. Babylon is described this way. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, 
holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. By contrast, the bride of Christ, the heavenly Jerusalem, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I pray, brothers and sisters, on the one hand, you know, we, in the terms of discontinuity, the wall's been taken down, right? The only thing that counts now, as Paul says, is faith working through love. On the other hand, it's just been redefined. Those who don't have faith in Christ have not true union with him, and therefore they cannot have true union with us yet. We are to love them, but we are to be separate. I would encourage you to examine your hearts if there are any ways this week in which perhaps the, decept- the detestable has become delectable to you. Or perhaps not delectable, but not quite de- detestable. Maybe it's just not that bad. There's to be a true revulsion of the heart against the sin of the world, brothers and sisters. And lastly, in conclusion, let me just say for you children, if you want to come to Christ, the doors are wide open. You don't have to look to being born of someone. You may be born from Christian parents. That doesn't give you any kind of guarantee to be saved. It also can't bar you. The child who has no Christian parents or Christian parents, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that you come in faith. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what you're good at, what you're bad at. The only thing that matters is faith in Christ. So come today and you will be forgiven and received and welcomed by God. And you will receive the Holy Spirit as well. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we cry out to you, a congregation of Gentiles, giving thanks, not only for your salvation, but for that vision that you gave Cornelius and Peter and all the other ways that you made it clear that you have received us fully. We admit, Lord, that both Jew and Gentile only are accepted to you on the basis of the blood of Christ received by faith. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for having mercy on us, though we were not originally of the people of God. Yet we who were far off have been drawn near by the blood of Christ. Would you help us to stand firm in that, Father God? And yet also, Lord, would you help us to stand firm And the fact that you have called us to holiness. Would we flee from the midst of the uncleanness of this world and not be defiled of it? Would you help us to detest sin? Particularly, not so much the sin of our neighbor, but especially the sin in our own heart. That that would be truly revolting and detestable. And we pray for those here who do not know you yet. You would grant them faith and repentance and bring them into your kingdom in Christ's name.